It is late November in the year 1790, and as winter storms rage, the winds of revolution batter the old world. In France, the monarchy is weakened by constitutional reform. Across the Channel in England, King George III attempts to claw back some of the monarchistic powers lost during England's own brief but glorious revolution over a hundred years earlier. The Industrial Revolution is picking up speed, and London is booming. Tonight, however, the rain pelts down on a dark, blustery evening. Thick clouds descend on the newly built Buckingham Palace. Across the river, in the emerging neighborhood of Southwark, lanterns throw halos of eerie amber light into smoky air. A faint light in an upstairs window of a small house stains the darkness. Inside, an angry hand moves furiously across the page, causing the quill to dance madly, as if it too were driven by the wind rattling at the window. By flickering candlelight, Mary Wollstonecraft is finishing her pamphlet, A Vindication of the Rights of Men. You are listening to She Speaks Volumes the primer for 500 years of feminist history, philosophy, and writing. In this episode, we are listening to excerpts from the book that would lay the foundation of Western feminism, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Actor Fiona Thrale is reading for Mary Wollstonecraft. If you enjoyed this episode, please support the program by donating through the Buy Me a Coffee link. Your support helps me hire actors and pay for the cost of producing the podcast. A link is in the show notes and on the website, feralculturelab.com. Mary Wollstonecraft was born April 27, 1759, in Spitalfields, now part of London's East End. Instability in the family's finances and her father's drunken rages prompted her to seek employment outside of London as soon as she was able. Wollstonecraft worked first as a lady's companion in Bath and as a governess in Ireland. She also briefly started her own school. Finding none of these careers suitable, she returned to London to embark on a career as a writer. The first of a new genus, she would write in a letter to her sister. By 1788, Wollstonecraft was settled in Southwark, and assisted by the publisher Joseph Johnson, she picked up work writing reviews and translating texts, as well as publishing her first book, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, and her first novel, Mary, a Fiction. By 1790, through Johnson, Mary became part of a social group that included painter Henri Fuseli, poets and philosophers William Blake and Thomas Paine, and her future husband, the radical and chemist William Godwin. Wollstonecraft was in her element, surrounded by intellectuals that embraced the same optimism and liberal ideas. Throughout England was talk of a new era, inspired by revolutions both in America and in France. A year earlier, Wollstonecraft's longtime friend, Welshman Richard Price, 
a mathematician, reformer, and republican, had delivered a speech and pamphlet titled A Discourse on the Love of Our Country, a pamphlet promoting political change and raising the specter of another English republic. This ignited the revolution controversy, a war of pamphlets for and against democratic reform. Price's pamphlet in turn motivated Edmund Burke, the father of modern conservatism, to write his anti-revolutionary pamphlet, Reflections on the Revolution in France, asserting that the revolution was destroying the social fabric of France. It is to this pamphlet that our Mary is now furiously addressing her response, A Vindication of the Rights of Men, written as a public letter to Edmund Burke. Her letter defended the ideals of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Price's support of France's National Constituents' Assembly. It is an arduous task to follow the doublings of cunning or the subterfuges of inconsistency. For in controversy, as in battle, the brave man wishes to face his enemy and fight on the same ground. Knowing, however, the influence of a ruling passion and how often it assumes the form of reason when there is much sensibility in the heart, I respect an opponent, though he tenaciously maintains opinions in which I cannot coincide. But if I once discover that many of those opinions are empty rhetorical flourishes, my respect is soon changed into that pity which borders on contempt, and the mock dignity and haughty stalk only reminds me of the ass in the lion's skin. A sentiment of this kind glanced across my mind when I read your following exclamation. Whilst the royal captives who followed in the train were slowly moved along amidst the horrid yells and shrilling screams and the frantic dances and infamous contumelies and all the unutterable abominations of the furies of hell in the abused shape of the vilest of women. Probably you mean women who gained a livelihood by selling vegetables or fish, who never had any advantages of education, or their vices might have lost part of their abominable deformity by losing part of their grossness. Wollstonecraft's pamphlet was published anonymously and sold out within three weeks thanks to numerous positive reviews. The second printing was published under her name, which shifted the subject of the reviews from her political discourse and onto the subject of Mary, the woman writer. It would not be the last time that Mary Wollstonecraft herself would come under public scrutiny. As her philosophy became less mainstream, her life more bohemian, and her choices more radical, she would inspire both admiration and ire. Though Wollstonecraft found the revolutionary ideals inspiring, liberty, equality, and fraternity, she saw no real merit in a revolution that omitted half the population based on sex. Writing A Vindication of the Rights of Men had laid the groundwork for A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Vindication is not a neatly laid out manifesto that outlines how women should be treated. It is more of an indictment against patriarchal governance and ideology. Through her treaties, Wollstonecraft examines the rights and responsibilities of men and how they differ from the rights and responsibilities of women. My own sex, I hope, 
will excuse me if I treat them like rational creatures instead of flattering their fascinating graces and viewing them as if they were in a state of perpetual childhood, unable to stand alone? I wish to persuade women to endeavour to acquire strength, both of mind and body, and to convince them that the soft phrases, susceptibility of heart, delicacy of sentiment and refinement of taste are almost synonymous with epithets of weakness, and that these beings are only objects of pity, and that kind of love which has been termed its sister will soon become objects of contempt. Dismissing, then, those pretty feminine phrases which the men condescendingly use to soften our slavish dependence and despising that weak elegancy of mind, exquisite sensibility and sweet docility of manners supposed to be the sexual characteristics of the weaker vessel, I wish to show that elegance is inferior to virtue, that the first object of laudable ambition is to obtain a character as a human being, regardless of the distinction of sex, and that secondary views should be brought to this simple touchstone. Imagine life for a woman in the 18th century. During this revolutionary period, men of all ranks were pulling together to challenge how they were governed demanding more rights, creating greater opportunities for themselves. The lot of women, though, would be unchanged. If you were poor, you would stay poor because you were denied any means by which you could improve your situation. If you were wealthy, you would be dulled into madness or insipid stupidity by the lack of any occupation of the mind. Up until the late 18th century, and indeed for many years after, women were denied any real education, were not allowed to vote, own property, or businesses. They were considered the property of their fathers, and then their husbands. Within the revolution, Wollstonecraft saw a very real possibility of emancipation for women. Like Christine de Pizan before her, and Virginia Woolf after, the education of women and girls was central to her philosophy for it was only through education that women could break free of the shackles of subservience. The education of women has, of late, been more attended to than formerly, yet they are still reckoned a frivolous sex and ridiculed or pitied by the writers who endeavour, by satire or instruction, to improve them. It is acknowledged that they spend many of the first years of their lives in acquiring a smattering of accomplishments. Meanwhile, strength of body and mind are sacrificed to libertine notions of beauty, to the desire of establishing themselves the only way women can rise in the world, by marriage. And this desire, making mere animals of them, when they marry, they act as such children may be expected to act. They dress, they paint, and nickname God's creatures. Surely these weak beings are only fit for the seraglio. Can they govern a family or take care of the poor babes whom they bring into the world? If then 
It can be fairly deduced from the present conduct of the sex, from the prevalent fondness for pleasure, which takes place of ambition and those nobler passions that open and enlarge the soul, that the instruction which women have received has only tended, with the constitution of civil society, to render them insignificant objects of desire, mere propagators of fools, if it can be proved that in aiming to accomplish them without cultivating their understandings, they are taken out of their sphere of duties and made ridiculous and useless when the short-lived bloom of beauty is over. I presume that rational men will excuse me for endeavouring to persuade them to become more masculine and respectable. But should it be proved that woman is naturally weaker than man, from whence does it follow that it is natural for her to labour to become still weaker than nature intended her to be? Arguments of this cast are an insult to common sense and savour of passion. The divine right of husbands, like the divine right of kings, may, it is to be hoped, in this enlightened age, be contested without danger. You can learn more about Mary Wollstonecraft and the other writers in this series by signing up for the monthly Feral Culture Lab newsletter. A monthly dose of feminist facts and biographies, links to articles, and updates on Feral Culture Lab productions, such as The Amusium, a podcast on the philosophy and science of magic. In 1792, as Vindication for the Rights of Women is published, and the streets of London are filling up with people fleeing Paris, Mary Wollstonecraft moves to Paris to immerse herself in the spirit of the revolution. Mary Wollstonecraft's tenure in the City of Light did not, as one can expect, go well. Far from being the revolution that Wollstonecraft and many other supporters had imagined, the revolution deteriorated into the reign of terror, fueled by paranoia, fear, and the need for ultimate control. Wollstonecraft was ironically considered by the Jacobean authority to be a threat to the revolution, which, given the times, was probably not that notable, as almost everyone was considered a threat. Wollstonecraft had attacked many of the philosophers and writers that inspired the National Convention of the First French Republic and its constitution, most notably Rousseau. I should begin with Rousseau and give a sketch of the character of women in his own words, interspersing comments and reflections. My comments, it is true, will all spring from a few simple principles and might have been deduced from what I have already said, but the artificial structure has been raised with so much ingenuity that it seems necessary to attack it in a more circumstantial manner and make the application myself. For this reason, the education of the women should always be relative to the men. 
to please, to be useful to us, to make us love and esteem them, to educate us when young and to take care of us when grown up, to advise, to console us, to render our lives easy and agreeable. These are the duties of women at all times and what they should be taught in their infancy. So long as we fail to recur this principle, we run wide of the mark and all the precepts which are given them contribute neither to their happiness nor our own. Girls are from their earliest infancy fond of dress. Not content with being pretty, they are desirous of being thought so. We see, by all their little airs, that this thought engages their attention, and they are hardly capable of understanding what is said to them before they are governed by talking to them of what people will think of their behaviour. The same motive, however, indiscreetly made use of with boys, has not the same effect. Provided they are let to pursue their amusements at pleasure, they care very little what people think of them. Time and pains are necessary to subject boys to this motive. Supposing women to have been formed only to please and be subject to man, the conclusion is just. She ought to sacrifice every other consideration to render herself agreeable to him and let this brutal desire of self-preservation be the grand spring of all her actions when it is proved to be the iron bed of fate, to fit which her character should be stretched or contracted regardless of all moral or physical distinctions. But if, as I think may be demonstrated, the purposes of even this life, viewing the whole, are subverted by practical rules built upon this ignoble base, I may be allowed to doubt whether woman was created for man. And though the cry of irreligion or even atheism be raised against me, I will simply declare that were an angel from heaven to tell me that Moses' beautiful poetical cosmogony and the account of the fall of man were literally true, I could not believe what my reason told me was derogatory to the character of the supreme being and, having no fear of the devil before mine eyes, I venture to call this a suggestion of reason, instead of resting my weakness on the broad shoulders of the first seducer of my frail sex. Rousseau is not the only man who has indirectly said that merely the person of a young woman without any mind, unless animal spirits come under that description, is very pleasing. To render it weak and what some may call beautiful, the understanding is neglected. And girls forced to sit still, play with dolls and listen to foolish conversations, the effect of habit is insisted upon as an undoubted indication of nature. Vindication is not necessarily the first feminist text, though it is often presented as such. 
but it might be the first text we can identify as the dawn of modern feminism, a struggle for equality that began with its publication in 1792 and continues today. Vindication of the rights of women has much in it that makes me uncomfortable, such as justifying equality not for their own sake, but to become better wives and mothers. This, however, was the dawn of feminism, and we had not yet drawn the conclusion that it was the larger idea of patriarchy that was the problem. We had not yet realized that feminism was not just about equality for women, but a paradigm shift of values. You have been listening to She Speaks Volumes, a primer for 500 years of feminist history, theory, and ideas. To learn more about the women in this series, or the other podcasts I am producing, visit feralculturelab.com. In the next episode, we are listening to excerpts from Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. To automatically be notified when the next episode is published, subscribe to She Speaks Volumes in your preferred podcast player, or sign up for the Feral Culture Lab newsletter. A link is in the show notes and on the website, feralculturelab.com. 